Um, I have the pleasure of introducing the first speaker, right? If I get it right, that's Dr. Richard Kalp, who's the acting director of the Vaccine Research Center at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH. And he's an esteemed immunologist and vaccine researcher, and he'll talk to us about the revolution of mRNA vaccines and implications for an HIV vaccine. Please feel free to enter your questions into Slido during the talk. We'll have about 10 minutes to mo for moderated discussion afterwards. Thank you, Elaine. Uh, and thank you, uh, Paul and Jerry, for the in invitation to come speak to you today. It's a real honor to uh, present uh, in this course dedicated to my, my dear friend, Scott Hammer. Uh, he was a man who was small in stature, but a real giant in the field, and he will be truly missed. So uh, I work for the U.S. government, so I have no financial uh, uh, interest to, to disclose. Uh, hopefully, uh, after you hear my lecture, uh, you'll be able to describe the current status of HIV vaccine development and articulate uh, how the application of mRNA technology may actually speed the testing of new and existing HIV concepts. What I'm going to talk to you about today is really a tale of two pandemic vaccine efforts. Obviously, the HIV pandemic, which has been going on uh, for over 40 years, 80 million individuals infected, uh, 36 million people have died, and for which, despite years and years of research, we still don't have an effective vaccine. And compare that to the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic that's been going on for about two and a half years now, 522 million approximately infected, 6.2 million died, and we already have multiple successful vaccines. So the questions then become, why is there this difference? Is it all related to mRNA technology? And will mRNA vaccines revolutionize the HIV field? Uh, and I'm just going to go ahead and answer those questions right up front. And then hopefully during the lecture, you'll see why I answered these questions the way I did. So why the difference in the vaccine development for these two agents? Well, HIV and SARS-CoV-2 are inherently different viruses with vastly different susceptibility to pre-existing or vaccine-induced immunity. So we know that vaccines against SARS-CoV-2 protect against symptomatic disease and severe infection, but they don't block infection. We all know of many individuals, probably many in this room, fully vaccinated, and yet you've gotten infected with SARS-CoV-2. But luckily, the vaccines work so well that hopefully you had a, a very mild disease. That isn't going to work for HIV. If you get infected with HIV, you're infected with HIV. Uh, and so we really need a different type of immunity, a much greater barrier to infection for an HIV vaccine. Uh, is the rapid development of COVID, vaccine, uh, COVID vaccines all related to mRNA? Well, no, uh, not completely, uh, but certainly mRNAs are much faster to develop and deploy. And will mRNA vaccines revolutionize the HIV field? Maybe not revolutionize, but they'll certainly speed the process. Okay. If we look at uh, the uh, 
the development of HIV vaccines over the last 40 years, what you can see is that you know, HIV was first isolated in 1983. It took uh, four years before the first uh, phase one trials of a vaccine uh, were started. Uh, and it wasn't uh, for another 20 years before efficacy trials uh, began. Uh, and now we're out almost 40 years uh, and we still don't have a successful vaccine. Now compare that to just the last two years where we had the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. And we detected the emergence uh, of uh, SARS-CoV-2 at the end of 2019. Within a month, we had the sequence. And then almost immediately, uh, the U.S. government started supporting phase one clinical trials. Uh, and uh, phase threes started just a few months later. And uh, we had within a year, just under a year, we actually had emergency use, auth use authorization uh, for two different vaccines and then full licensure in about a year and a half. So it's been a really whirlwind uh, type of vaccine development compared to the HIV process. So what I'll talk about today is four topics, lessons learned in HIV vaccine development, current approaches in HIV vaccine development, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine development, and the role of mRNA technology, and then how will mRNA technology be applied to COVID vaccine, uh, to, to HIV vaccines, sorry. So back to this slide, and I'm just going to go through the actual efficacy trials and what we learned from these, and this will be very quick. So the first vaccines uh, were just uh, recombinant GP120, the envelope of uh, HIV. And what we learned is that they induced antibodies, but those antibodies did not neutralize. So antibodies that bind HIV envelope, but don't neutralize, don't protect. We then had a recombinant adenovirus vaccine trial that didn't include envelope. It was GAG, Paul. Uh, and NEF, and the idea there was to induce CD8 T cells uh, and see if those could then control infection once people got infected. And in fact, we did induce uh, CD8 T cells, but we did not uh, slow down the disease. So CD8 T cells alone are not sufficient for protection. You're all aware of the RV144 tie trial, which was an ALVAC, uh, followed by a uh, boost uh, with GP120, uh, and it showed about 31% efficacy. And so the thing was that the this vaccine did not induce neutralizing antibodies, but it did induce binding antibodies that mediated ADCC and other things. And the thought was that maybe uh, the, the uh, non-neutralizing antibodies were protective. Unfortunately, when they tried to repeat this trial, uh, they were unable to repeat those results. So it doesn't look like these non-neutralizing antibodies are protecting. And finally, there have been a couple of uh, ad, uh, adenovirus uh, trials, another uh, AD5 and, and an AD26 trial, which included envelope, and those failed to protect. So throughout this, uh, what we have learned is that HIV vaccines so far have failed to induce neutralizing antibodies and have failed uh, to protect. So the field in general uh, is moving towards the fact that efforts should be directed towards developing immunogens that stimulate neutralizing antibodies. But that's a difficult thing to do. And that's because HIV has these multiple variable loops 
uh, the envelope is very highly glycosylated and, and it's hard to make a good immune response against glycogen, uh, glycogen molecules. You really want to attack the protein molecules. These uh, glycogens tend to shield the neutralizing uh, antibody domains, uh, and there are multiple clades of HIV, all of which are different enough uh, that it actually uh, causes problems uh, in being able to get broad coverage. So what are the current approaches in HIV vaccine development? As I said, we're trying to induce neutralizing antibodies now, and we're, what we're really relying on is our knowledge of the structure of the HIV envelope. This is called structure-based uh, vaccine design. So I, I list here a number of uh, publications uh, where the structure of the HIV envelope has been determined with and without uh, glycosylations. Uh, and what's been done to actually stabilize the, that uh, envelope trimer into a very stable uh, format. Uh, these are mostly called SOSIP trimers. The SOSIP stands for the modifications that have been made in order to stabilize that trimer in its pre-fusion uh, complex. Nice study from Rohir Saunders and uh, John Moore, uh, John Moore here in uh, New York City at uh, Cornell, uh, showed that if you take uh, envelope trimers that are not uh, well structured, so they, they're sort of, you can see in these cryo EMs, they're very floppy, the different trimers sort of hang out there in different uh, planes, uh, and you immunize uh, rabbits, or you take these SOSIP trimers, where you can see this very ordered structure uh, of them, and you immunize rabbits. The only place where you get neutralizing antibodies uh, is with these very structured uh, uh, or, or very, very tight uh, trimer structures. Unfortunately, these antibodies, these neutralizing antibodies, are very type-specific. So they will only neutralize uh, the uh, vaccine or the virus strain that was included in the vaccine. They won't uh, neutralize all sorts of other vaccine uh, or uh, all sorts of other virus strains. So these stabilized envelope primers are very important, but they're insufficient to stimulate broadly protective uh, neutralizing antibodies. The other good thing about uh, knowing the the atomic structure of the HIV envelope is we can now identify where broadly neutralizing antibodies are actually binding to the envelope. And once you know that, you can then use that uh, information uh, to develop immunogens to try and get the immune response to target that specific epitope. So if you look there, there are five different regions of the envelope that are really targeted by broadly neutralizing antibodies. The CD4 binding site, I'll spend a lot of time talking about that. Uh, there's the V3 or N332 glycan supersite, the V3 loop you've probably heard about. There's a V1, V2 cap on the envelope, uh, and uh, that's another target. You have the, the trimer interface domain and the, the MPER or the membrane proximal external region of GP41. This just shows some of those broadly neutralizing antibodies that have been isolated. So people who have been infected for many years, about 10, 20% of individuals develop these broadly neutralizing antibodies. Once you isolate them, 
You can then test them against a panel of 208 uh, uh, different viruses of all different clades and ask how well do they neutralize. And on these graphs, I've broken it down uh, into CD4 binding site antibodies, those that target the, the V3 glycan, the, the V1, V2, or the MPER region. And each dot is one of those 208 viruses. And the further down uh, on the graph, the more potent that antibody is against that virus. What you can see is the CD4 binding site antibodies uh, are not the most potent, but the nice thing is these are the percent of those 208 viruses that are resistant. Some of these uh, capture 96, 98% of uh, the uh, strains of the uh, virus out there. So these are very broad. Some of them that are much more potent, like the V1, V2, miss a quarter to a half of the viruses. So they're, they're more potent, but they miss half the viruses. If we look just at these CD4 binding site antibodies, the nice thing about these, this shows uh, 11 different CD4 binding site antibodies and how they bind to the GP120. And if you overlay the crystal structures, they're almost exactly the same. So the CD4 binding site antibodies, is, are, they're really a, a class uh, of antibodies called BRCO1-like antibodies, uh, and they contain the same immunoglobulin genes. Uh, it's, it's a very reproducible uh, response. So the question is, can we actually stimulate this type of antibody with a vaccine? And a lot of effort is now going into to that. We know in individuals who are infected with HIV how these BRCO1 class antibodies actually uh, develop. So what happens is you have an envelope, it engages naive B cells, which have immunoglobulin on their surface, and starts to stimulate uh, a naive B cell to become a memory B cell and produce immunoglobulin. Over time, that antibody response will change and will mature with somatic hypermutation until you get one of these broadly neutralizing antibodies. These very early ones are not very broad. It takes a lot of somatic hypermutation in order to get very broad uh, neutralization. How does that happen? Well, how that happens is every time you develop an antibody against the virus, the envelope of that virus changes. After it changes, the antibody changes in order to now attack the new envelope, which changes, you get a new antibody response, et cetera, et cetera. So you could look at this and say, well, if you want this blue type of broadly neutralizing antibody from a vaccine, what you should just do is start with this blue antigen. And then you would just drive things in that direction. Unfortunately, what we know is that most of these envelopes uh, that bind uh, to a broadly neutralizing antibody, don't actually engage uh, the naive precursor. So what we've had to do is now go back and try and develop specific immunogens, which will engage these naive B-cell precursors. Several groups are working on this. I'm going to concentrate on one of them, which is Bill Sheaf's group out of the, the Scripps uh, Research Institute, uh, where he's developed this immunogen that mimics uh, the CD4 binding site so you just take sort of what the CD4 binding site looks like and you, you pull that out uh, and make what he calls EODGT8. What he then did is he took that EODGT8 that mimics the CD4 binding site 
and he put it on a 60 mer nanoparticle. So you now have 60 of these uh, CD4 binding sites decorating a single particle. That's gone through a, a phase one human clinical trial. Uh, they've looked at whether it, that immunogen is be able to engage the naive B cell precursors, get them to expand and start uh, 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 maturing. And the answer is yes. The, the results haven't been published, but they've pre been presented at meetings. Uh, so what we know uh, is that uh, this works. And what I need to tell you is while I'm concentrating on Bill Sheaf's work, there are other groups uh, that are working on similar uh, types of naive B cell precursor stimulating immunogens. Uh, uh, one uh, by Rohir Sanders and John Moore. John Moore is a local New York uh, colleague. And so I, I can't give this lecture without uh, a shout out to John Moore and his group. So what uh, has happened so far is we have this EODGTA, which we know initiates this process, but now what we need to do is what we call shaping and polishing. So we need further immunogens, and this will probably be in the form of these uh, envelope trimers, to shape, polish, uh, and ultimately drive uh, towards a broadly neutralizing CD4 binding site antibody. The problem with this process is that each one of these is a different protein, and each protein requires one to two years of manufacturing process development uh, before you can even get to phase one testing. So this pathway is going to take years to decades. So what we have learned so far for HIV vaccine development is that structural details of the HIV envelope are important. Uh, they've been crucial for designing the next generation of immunogens that can stimulate neutralizing antibodies to HIV. The native envelope trimers as immunogens are unlikely to stimulate more than limited autologous neutralizing antibodies. And we're going to need a complex series uh, of immunogens in order to get where we want to, broad neutralization. And unless we can develop the, uh, or can accelerate this development process, it's going to be decades probably before we have an HIV vaccine. So let's uh, move now to SARS-CoV-2 vaccine development. So much like uh, what I told you about structure-based vaccine design uh, for HIV, structure-based vaccine design was crucial for SARS-CoV-2 vaccine development. So what we knew very early on uh, was the uh, pre-fusion spike structure of SARS-CoV-2. And the reason we knew that is because of years of previous work on SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV. Uh, so these were two very similar viruses uh, that people uh, at the Vaccine Research Center and elsewhere had been working on and figured out that really all you needed to do in order to stabilize that spike protein is put two prolines uh, up at uh, the, the, the top of the uh, spike protein. During the, the fusion process, uh, part of the protein flips uh, up uh, to the top. Uh, prolines will stop that from happening. So the addition of two prolines kept it in its pre-fusion format. And as I said, it was prior work uh, on MERS and SARS-CoV-1 that allowed us to know this. 
Uh, and so you've all heard of the uh, S2P protein. Well, that's uh, what the S2P protein is. It's two prolines into the spike uh, protein uh, to stabilize it. And because of this, once the sequence was known, five days later, uh, they could start producing uh, product uh, and start manufacturing and doing preclinical studies. Uh, within two months, uh, this is the Moderna timeline, uh, they had phase ones going uh, 140 days and they had phase two. Uh, just over six months, they started the phase three and in under a year, uh, they had emergency use authorization with efficacy. So an incredibly fast timeline using mRNA technology. So the US government actually supported six different vaccine products, which are listed here. So what you'll see uh, is that two of them, Moderna and BioNTech Pfizer were mRNA, two were adenoviral vectors, uh, and two uh, were recombinant protein. Almost all of them uh, use that S2P uh, mutation, uh, and the mRNA vaccines were the fastest because they uh, were the, the easiest to produce uh, and get out into clinical trials. The adenovirus vectors were right behind. Uh, the only reason the uh, AstraZeneca uh, vaccine uh, hasn't uh, gotten EUA in the U.S. is because it uh, got EUA in, in uh, Europe and they uh, decided not to apply here in the U.S., and then the uh, protein vaccines uh, have taken much longer. Uh, and as you're aware, uh, for the Novavax, just last week, uh, they had the Verpac meeting, and uh, it was a unanimous vote uh, that uh, uh, Novavax, uh, which is a protein vaccine, should, should get uh, EUA uh, approval. We still have to hear from the FDA, uh, uh, but that will certainly be coming in the next day or so. I just want to show you that these mRNA vaccines, uh, not that I have to tell you this, but they're very efficacious. You've seen in the literature these, uh, these curves, uh, efficacy curves. Even after a single dose, uh, you can see uh, that you're, you're getting uh, protection very early on. So 94% protection against symptomatic PCR-confirmed uh, COVID. Both of these uh, curves uh, were developed during the initial wave of COVID. This doesn't include protection against Delta, Omicron, et cetera. And as a result of that, here in the US, you can see the use of mRNA vaccines uh, versus uh, the adenovirus uh, vaccines. I could show you a similar uh, graph for, for uh, Europe, and it would be similar, except there would be a smattering of other vaccines in there. So mRNA immunization, uh, we know it induces uh, antibody, uh, CD8 T cells, uh, CD4 T cells that are Th1 or T follicular helper-like. Uh, what you don't want from these vaccines is a Th2 response, and it doesn't induce a Th2 response. Uh, COVID-19 uh, data indicate uh, from the millions and millions of people uh, that have been vaccinated that it's uh, quite safe. Uh, we do know uh, uh, about uh, the uh, myocarditis and a few other small problems, but, but very uh, uh, safe uh, uh, profile. 
The stability and supply chain is improving. These have to be kept at minus 80, but uh, that's something that, that's uh, being worked on. Uh, there is some improvement in codon selection, secondary mRNA structure, et cetera. One thing that mRNA vaccines do, once they're taken up, so first you have to get them taken up. So you use lipid nanoparticles to get them taken up and different lipid nanoparticles will lead to different amounts of the mRNA being taken up. Then you want them to induce protein production without uh, this inflammatory response, uh, which can result. Uh, and so using, using pseudouracil and some other uh, techniques, you can decrease that inflammatory response. The important thing with all these improvements, mRNA is not magic. It doesn't in some way induce a, a broadly neutralizing response. It, you know, you still need the right antigen design. And I think we have that at this point. The other thing is that it's very easy to produce these. Uh, instead of 2000 liter bioreactors, uh, you can do these in 40 ml flasks. And it's very, uh, very conducive uh, to low and middle income country uh, manufacturing. What type of immunity is correlated with the protection that I showed you? Well, this was published uh, in November uh, of last year, and it's neutralizing antibodies. Uh, so if you look uh, at uh, the peak immunogenicity after the Moderna mRNA vaccines, the higher your neutralizing antibody titer, the greater and greater uh, your vaccine efficacy. So for SARS-CoV-2, what we've uh, uh, learned at this point uh, is that prior work on SARS uh, spike uh, structure uh, and the ease of protein stabilization were very important. Uh, use of mRNA and viral vectors to express uh, the spike uh, led to more rapid development. Uh, and the rapid mobilization of the U.S. government to support uh, pharma and biotech uh, was also crucial. High efficacy against symptomatic COVID was achieved by multiple different vaccine platforms. Induction of neutralizing antibodies by vaccines correlate with the protection against COVID. Uh, but you all know that the vaccine protection was incomplete uh, and waned uh, in the face of the virus starting to escape that immunity and new waves of virus uh, uh, variants coming up. So finally, in the last five minutes, how will this uh, mRNA uh, uh, technology be applied to HIV? Well, on the same uh, week uh, that uh, Janssen announced that its AD26 vaccines uh, were not uh, successful, Moderna announced that it was getting into the HIV vaccine field. And not only uh, Moderna, but also Pfizer BioNTech is also getting involved. How are they getting involved? Well, for Moderna, uh, I showed you the fact that what we need uh, is to uh, develop these uh, new immunogens for shaping and polishing. Uh, and in fact, uh, Moderna uh, has uh, agreed to start making these uh, different uh, vaccine components uh, for the, the Bill Sheaf uh, program uh, of, of HIV vaccine development. And changing to mRNA will really shorten that design cycle. For every protein that needed to be produced, you produce these out of uh, uh, 
cellular uh, uh, cell culture. So along with the vaccine that gets produced or the protein that gets produced, you have all the cellular components. You have whatever viruses were contained within that cell line. You need to go through a process to show that you've got very pure protein. And in the process of purifying that protein that you haven't changed the structure. Novavax, the reason it's taken them so long is when they first started out, they were only getting 30% purity of their protein. Then when it got up to about 60% purity, that's when they were able to do the clinical trials. Uh, And ultimately now they're at much, much higher purity. But for proteins, it takes a long time. So in addition to Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech, there are lots of other companies and groups that are getting involved. Uh, some nonprofits uh, such as Greenlight Biosciences, Akagera, Afrogens is a group that's uh, trying to develop this technology specifically for the continent of Africa, and government and academic centers like the, the Vaccine Research Center, the Duke Vaccine Institute are, are uh, getting uh, and acquiring mRNA technology. So the important thing, however, is that don't think that Big Pharma is throwing a lot of money into this. They're still looking for the U.S. government and others to fund it, but they're, they're uh, allowing their technology to be applied. So what can mRNA technology do for HIV vaccine development? Well, shorten timelines for production to clinical testing of vaccine concepts, eliminate time-consuming and costly steps associated with protein vaccine manufacturing, and decrease cost of production. This will shorten the overall design cycle time, which is the time from a vaccine concept to an actual uh, product that goes into the arm of an individual. What it can't do uh, is induce some sort of magical sterilizing immunity. The SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccines protect against symptomatic and severe disease, but they don't provide sterilizing immunity and, and we've seen that these progressive waves of infection uh, within vaccinated populations clearly demonstrate that the current mRNA vaccines do not provide ro- robust protection against infection, something that's going to be needed for HIV vaccines. So just to finally uh, re-answer the questions that I posed, why the difference between HIV and COVID vaccine development? Well, SARS-CoV-2 and HIV are very different. Uh, A vaccine that provides uh, neutralizing antibodies and protection against uh, some infection, but not all infection, is good for SARS-CoV-2, not going to work for HIV. Uh, Is the rapid development of uh, COVID vaccine all related to mRNA technology? No, but mRNA will help. And will mRNA vaccines revolutionize the the HIV vaccine? Maybe not revolutionize, uh, but certainly help speed the process. And boy, we we need new new concepts and faster uh, testing uh, of these HIV vaccine concepts. And with that, I will just leave this slide up there. There are too many people to list uh, uh, individually, but just say that this has been a real... uh, incredible group effort, and I'm happy to take any questions. So great. 
So I'm going to encourage everybody, if you have questions, to put them into the Q&A. Um, we have a couple that I'll start with. And the first question is whether the availability of the um, Novavax vaccine is helpful. Are there any advantages? How do you see that? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a very interesting question. I mean, Novavax uh, is a protein. The, the initial thought uh, was that there's a group of people out there who didn't want to take the vaccines because it's mRNA, it's new, there's not that much known about it, uh, and that they would be uh, interested in getting a protein vaccine. Uh, I think that's probably a very small part of the, the population. The other thing that still needs to be tested, we know uh, from mRNA and the, the Janssen AD26 vaccine uh, that when you boost, uh, you get very good immunity, but then that drops off fairly quickly. So there's the question of whether the mRNA vaccines are just not providing enough durable immunity and maybe boosting uh, with a, a protein vaccine will give uh, more durable immunity. We don't know the answer to that yet, but uh, certainly something that will be tested. Great. Um, so another question is, do you think the RNA, mRNA technology will allow for better um, flu vaccines? Uh, yes, very good question. So as you know, for, for the flu vaccines, uh, every year they have to figure out in the Southern Hemisphere what may be uh, coming next year. Uh, you then need to start production uh, of what you think is going to be coming uh, some of that's produced in cell culture, some of it's produced in eggs. You've got all of the manufacturing, all of the purification, and it takes a, a good six months to do that. So you're, you're really looking six months uh, ahead of time to try and predict what you need to manufacture. If mRNA can shorten that to three months, it allows... Uh, vaccine that we're coming uh, mm. that we're going to be administering in the fall a little better to what actually uh ends up circulating as you know sometimes we get it wrong we we, we have the wrong strains in the vaccine great so um another question is as we develop and implement better and better prep agents antiretroviral agents maybe being up how do you actually test the efficacy of new these new vaccines? Yeah, it, that's an excellent question. I mean, we have so many uh, prevention strategies, uh, so many of which work, uh, that it, it really increases the size and complexity of any efficacy trial uh, that we need to do. So I, you know, I, I'm not going to claim to be a clinical trialist. Uh, there are a lot more people in this audience who know this better than I do. Uh, but it's it's not going to be easy to to uh, test efficacy of, of HIV vaccines. Even having difficulty testing new prep agents, given yeah. currently available agents. Yeah. Right. Um, so we have a, another question: um, Will the development of vaccines using mRNA technology go after the different targets within one or? a series of vaccines, CD4, MPR. Oh, I'm sorry. I, 
Yes, I'm, so I'll read it again. Will the development of vaccines using mRNA technology go after the different targets? Ah, very, very good, yes. Yeah. So, so as I say, I concentrated on the CD4 binding site antibody uh, lineage uh, that uh, Bill Sheaf and his group are attacking. The John Moore uh, immunogens are actually uh, targeting not only the CD4 binding site, uh, but also uh, the the cap, the the V1, V2 cap, and and potentially uh, other other uh, sites uh, on the envelope trimer. So as mRNA technology comes in, yes, those those other targets will be part of, of that development. And then, do you think the mRNA technology will allow us to one day develop a successful vaccine against the common cold? Well, I think coronaviruses are one of the causes of the common cold. And uh, yeah, I, I think uh, coronaviruses aren't the only thing. There, there are lots of other viruses. Uh, but you know, the, the question becomes, uh, you know, how many different uh, vaccines uh, can you put into a, a single, or how many different viruses uh, specificities can you put into a single mRNA vaccine? And it, the nice thing is that you can package a lot into mRNA. Uh, and so, you know, you could, you could have uh, a vaccine that covered uh, a few different human coronaviruses, a few different adenoviruses that cause uh, common colds. So yeah, uh, you know, the, the world is your oyster. Uh, who knows what we can get to? Okay, so uh, speaking of flu vaccines, and it's fine for you to say it's not your turf, will the 2022-23 season flu shots include protection for the newer strains of COVID? So it'll be separate. I mean, what we're trying to do uh, is have the the new COVID uh, vaccine, to to have the the rollout uh, of a COVID vaccine boost for the fall. There is a BRPAC meeting on June 28, uh, which uh, will decide what the component of that will be. It may include uh, Omicron uh, in addition to the the, uh, original strain. And then that would be rolled out at the same time as the flu. It wouldn't be combined with the flu vaccine, but you could go to your doctor, you could go to your, your uh, drugstore and get both vaccines at the same time. That's the hope. Maybe that'll increase the number of people who get both. And that, let's do one final question. What would it take for a COVID vaccine to prevent transmission? That's a very good question. It's uh, sort of the next wave. We're almost starting uh, from from uh, the, the very beginning uh, in, in development of this. So what we know is that it's very easy to protect with the current vaccines against lower respiratory tract infection, but we're not really protecting very well against infection in the nose uh, or the amount of virus that's shed. So what we're trying to do now is develop vaccines which are given intranasally and stimulate mucosal immunity such that hopefully will block uh, a lot of the infection within the nose. That will block transmission to other individuals. Uh, But we're just starting uh, on that journey right now. Well, on that fascinating note, I'll thank you for a fantastic talk. Thank you. And for answering questions. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And...
so we'll take a brief break and I'll ask you to um, go back into Slido and to answer two more questions here. Um, how many individuals with HIV are presently under your direct care? Music. Okay, let's see what we have. Fantastic. So about fifth of people are not providing direct care, but let's see, let's see. They're still going, going, going. Okay, so we clearly have quite a few cl clinicians and some of you with very large practices, so fantastic. And we have one more question. How many in-person CME activities have you attended in the past two years? my answer to that I told you earlier. Okay, let's see. So welcome particularly to those of you who are uh, here at your first C CME, uh, live person CME, and wow to those of you who've who've been doing this over the last couple of years. That's fantastic. <laughs> 